This is Fundraising Radio, and today's guest speaker we have Rafael Danilo, co-founder and CEO of Yops. And today we're going to talk about fundraising when you have a really complex technology, and about angel investing, and about how do investors behave during coronavirus eruption. So, Danilo, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on Yops. Sure. Sure. So, uh, I'm a French native. Uh, born and raised in Paris, been in the US for five, six years now. Uh, my background is I studied business and data science. And uh, my you know, first job was I was the, the first employee for an Israeli natural language processing startup. I was their first hire in the US and uh, doing mostly sales and product. Then three years ago, I started Yobs with my co-founder Federico we wanted to build the operating system for reskilling and upskilling effectively what that means is a billion people are going to need to change careers or learn new skills over the next decade and a lot of that comes down to soft skills personality no not everybody's going to be able to make a great nurse or a great software engineer mm -hmm. um and i think we we recognized that the core problem was that as assessing soft skills and personality is incredibly challenging when you're only working with data points like, you know, LinkedIn and the resume. Um, and so there's just no cost efficient, scalable, accurate, unbiased way to assess these traits. And so we, uh, we built an API that lets you assess soft skills and personality over voice and video with a simple API. So that's, that's jobs. We've raised about $1.5 million to date and we're based in Los Angeles. We work now with, with several large, uh, companies, helping them with hiring, reskilling, talent management, admissions. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm also an angel investor. So two years ago, I started as a scout for a fund in Los Angeles, uh, that, you know, mostly does series A investments. I, uh, I do primarily seed and series A investments as well, uh, writing 20 to $25,000 checks. And, uh, my, you know, yeah, my, my interests are more obviously in what I know, which is B2B AI machine learning. And I've probably done 11 or 12 investments to date. Uh, most of which through the scout fund and a couple, uh, coming in personally. Got it. So before we actually move on to your investors experience i wanted to go a little bit in depth into your fundraising experience with jobs uh you said that api is simple but the technology sounds really complex right so how long did you spend on building out the mvp yeah i think the the thesis that we had there was of course as as you mentioned the technology behind the you know under the hood is quite complex but we wanted to abstract away all of that complexity from the client so that the client wouldn't have to, you know, worry about that complexity. It's kind of like, if you want to parallel, like I, I like the parallel of Uber where the interface to the user, when you're using the Uber app is really quite elegant and simple. It's you press a button and a car shows up right? and it's going to be affordable and it takes you from point A to point B, but you know, underlying that, is is a massive operational challenge of constantly having supply in your area but then also for uber making sure that there's enough demand that you know uh they're not you know just paying uber drivers for nothing uh making sure that their algorithms work properly to do all the matching making sure that they, they're screening drivers so that there it's not just a random uh person driving you around who uh, you know has a criminal record or something 
Mm -hmm. So those are all complexities that are completely abstracted away from the user. And I think we were fascinated by building an experience that is incredibly elegant from the user side. And so the, the way the API works is if you just have, you know, video or audio interviews of your candidates or employees uh, or users, uh, you know, as long as you have consent from them, you can easily pass them anonymously to the API. So we don't even capture the name or the you know, personal information of that person, um, which helps us be you know, easily compliant with all the data regulation laws um, and also just protect the, the information of the user. And then we can return you the, uh, you know, the scores, the, the results um, within 24 hours. And it almost feels like magic because every time it's accurate um, and it's on a scale that is, you know, it's, it's traits that, uh, you know, the five factor model, empathy, consensuousness, traits that are sort of consensus and well-known in HR circles. And behind the scenes, what's actually happening is we're using uh, a mix of technology and domain expertise and data informed best practices to actually make the whole thing work. So the way that it actually works is you, we apply a confidence score to every interview that comes through. And the confidence score is based on things like the length of the videos, how many words are spoken, the quality of the audio, the quality of the video. And then we can decide, okay, a human needs to do this entirely. So this is if a, you know, file is of particularly bad quality, which happens rarely, but it happens. Or, okay, this file is of decent quality, in which case the algorithms can transcribe what the person is saying into text. They can start analyzing that. We can uh, capture the, the, the tonality and the facial emotions, and we can start analyzing that. And that'll give you already a good head start. And then the human can come in and complete the analysis. Mm -hmm. And All right, the third let's layer not... is well, complete automation, and that's when the algorithm does all of it. Got it. So uh, my question was more focused on uh, not as of oh, technological part, but on fundraising part. So, right. so uh, I know that many founders say that with the complex technology that they have, they need money before they actually build an MVP because they need money to build this MVP. How, how have you solved this problem? Have you built an MVP prior to raising money and you got traction before you actually went out to investors or have you done it another way? Yeah, I mean, from a technology standpoint, you always want to build more. You, there's always another feature that you think is critical that you absolutely need to build before you can show it to a customer, before you can show it to an investor, whatever the stakeholder is. For us, like we just decided to build really like the all of the functionalities that we wanted that we thought were absolutely core to the experience that we wanted to create for customers without much of it being proprietary for the very, very first iteration. Because you just, you know, you don't want to spend a million, even say that you do raise two, three million dollars seed round uh, to build your tech, like, you know, who's to say that the market actually cares, that market, the, the market actually wants what you're building. Um, so we, we, we built the first iteration of the product with very little money, with a lot of off-the-shelf software, off-the-shelf APIs, libraries, SDKs. If you actually do the research, there's you know so many op even open source code right now mm -hmm. that it's becoming easier and easier to build software, sometimes without even knowing how to code. Um, build the initial experience that you want to build. Um, you know, in, in our case, like using, you know, off the shelf speech to text APIs, using off the shelf, 
you know, text analysis, facial analysis. We were able to do a lot of what we initially wanted to do um, without having to build a ton of proprietary stuff. And then with that, we got our first sort of customers. And then with those first customers, we got our first sort of money in. And then once we actually had validated the problem, we had validated the solution and we had a little bit more resources than we were able to go into actually building out what we wanted to build, uh, which was, you know, more elegant, more sophisticated, would address the problem better with higher performance, so on and so forth. But that was a second iteration. Right. That's, I think that's the best way to, to, to do this, not try to focus on tech so much. So let's talk about the coronavirus situation. Um, right now with the coronavirus, I know that many investors are focusing on their portfolio companies. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with your investors who invested in jobs? Yeah, I don't I don't think there, there's anything specific with, with our investors. I think a, a lot of our investors are, are angels. Um, so they're they're probably taking as much of a hit, of a hit as, as we all are, um, no, no, not necessarily more or less. I think for in the U.S. at least, um, you know, there's a, a big question mark around, uh, you know, there's a program called the payroll, the, the payroll protection program. Mm -hmm. There's a big question of whether venture backed startups are even going to be eligible for that. So I think that all of the question marks around like government aid uh, versus like, you know, how investors are shifting, how they think. I, I think like people are still very much doing that math. What I'm seeing though from from VCs and angel investors is that most angel investors have just completely frozen investing right now because mm -hmm. it's their personal capital that they're investing and they've all taken a hit of at least, you know, 10 to 20% of their net worth with everything going on, sometimes more. Um, that's number one. Number two is VCs. VCs, I think right now are sort of evaluating how much of an impact COVID is going to have on the on their existing companies. And so a, a VC typically spends, you know, 60 to 80% of their time sourcing new deals and doing discovery. Right now, portfolio management, which is oftentimes a small part of their time is now a huge part of their time because all of their companies are firing 10, 20, 30% of their, of their, uh, um, of their of their staff, you know, sometimes they're losing half of their revenue depending on you know the industries that they're in. So they're spending a lot more time, uh, you know, in board meetings and working with their portfolio companies, working all of this out, which means less time to meet with founders. Um, and then on top of that, the thesis that they had built uh, and the convictions that they had built prior to COVID have now a lot of them have been thrown out the window because they were probably pretty. Uh, you know, convinced that, hey, like, this is how this industry is going to play out. We're going to look for an investment that does X because it fits into our thesis. Now, the world has completely changed. And so, um, you know, they, they need a little bit of time to sort of build up their thesis again. And I think that also contributes to uh, the slowdown in investments that we're that we're seeing already. Absolutely. So, I mean, you already have your funding secured, so I think you're good for, for this period of time, of course. Uh, but what's what's your advice to founders who didn't raise money before the coronavirus hit? What should they do right now? Um, I think a few. I mean, a few things. It really depends on your stage. Um, you know, if you if you. You know, it also depends on whether you're how how bad of a hit your industry is taking. Some industries are actually benefiting from 
you know, Corona, um, I mean, if I'm thinking of like, you know, remote tech tools, um, even the very, very early stage one, you know, companies are benefiting from that. So I think it's, it's, it's about like, you know, think through scenario planning, right? Like, are you, what were your targets before um, and have like a best case and worst case scenario? you know, the, the, you have different levers that you can pull on as a CEO, which is, um, you know, number one, like how much cash is coming in the bank. Uh, and then number two is, is, you know, how much are you spending? Um, and then within these two levers, uh, and how much cash is coming in is, you know, how much is COVID going to affect your revenue? Um, that's very company specific. How much is COVID going to affect your fundraising? Now for most companies, this is a pretty drastic one. Uh, if you raise the seed round, and you know you're running out of cash you want to raise your series a you can assume that the re series a investments are going to be delayed um same thing for if you were going to try to raise your seed round you know expect that you're not going to be able to raise for at least another you know three to six months minimum um what does your you know you know zero cash date look like um if if you can't raise for another three to six months is, is revenue coming in the door how much are you spending and on the spending side i think like there's there's ways to be thoughtful about how you you know you know cut down on your costs mm -hmm. um are you spending money on your office are you spending money on tools that you don't need um you know and then uh, you know how much are you spending on marketing uh is marketing you know do you need all of that marketing so i think like without necessarily laying off anyone you can already cut a lot of cost um and then of course like the last thing is you know well sometimes you do need to make some cuts um then again you want to do it in a thoughtful way that doesn't impact the rest of your staff um specifically at startups where layoffs can really hurt the morale of the rest of the workers that are there absolutely that's for sure so um you you've mentioned layoffs and i think this is a very very interesting part right now uh because Layoffs are difficult. They hurt basically the whole structure. Even if you fire just one pe person, the rest 30 people in the team might be affected heavily. So uh, when do you think it's time to actually fire someone? In a, in a wartime scenario like, like this or, or yes, you know, in yes. sort of like in a regular course scenario. of business? In a wartime scenario, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I would say it's very different from like a regular course of business where like if, if someone has, is, is, you know, significantly underperforming or, or, you know, has a toxic personality, then is just not improving over time. It, that, that's, you know, in a peacetime scenario, those can be the factors that drive, um, you know, company to part way with, with, with an employee. I think in a, in a wartime scenario, the math is a little bit different. Uh, you want to just have a, I, I, I think like, the wartime scenarios are the best times to be incredibly transparent with your with your teams, with your investors, with all your stakeholders. I think the first thing that we did at Yobs was we sat down with um, both our investors, and so we sent like investor updates uh, at a you know higher cadence than we usually do, um, and with both like updates on like you know we we constantly update them with like how much cash we have in the bank, how much cash we expect to have in the bank in one, two, three months. So what we did here was we gave them those updates on a more regular basis. And then we talked about um, what we think, uh, how we think COVID is going to affect our business in the next, you know, three, six, 18 months. Um, and then we shared that plan also with our people. Um, so I think that was really critical. Um, I would say, obviously, you know, if you can 
avoid firing or laying off people or furloughing people, absolutely do that. Uh, that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, as you said, layoffs have not only do you potentially need to pay severance and, and all of that, but there's also the sort of hit to productivity and hit to morale that that um, you know it incurs for other people. And then there's also the cost of replacing that person that you trained, that you onboarded, that was motivated to work at your company. Um, you know, sourcing, screening, onboarding, and ramping up a new person, even like a an SDR is is incredibly expensive and will take months. So I would take those decisions, of course, very, very seriously. Um, but that also comes from a place of privilege because at Yobs, like we we somewhat benefit from COVID in the medium to long term because it, it sort of accelerates the adoption of remote tech. So comparatively speaking, we we're not a business that's been hit you know the most, and so we haven't had to make any layoffs. Um, you know, if you're a business in hospitality or restoration or, or, or tech that sells to these people, to these industries, it's, you know, you're not gonna see revenue for the next three to six months. So it's, uh, you know, making cuts is just the nature of business. Uh, it's, I think it's about doing it in a thoughtful way. Uh, that's that's really where, where the difference is. Not doing it like some companies have where you, uh, you know, mass fire people over Zoom calls. Um, you know, I don't know if you've heard of some of these horror stories no. recently, but you know, I think you, 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 how you do it probably matters as much as like whether you do it. Right. So I really want to jump into the legal side of firing. So for example, you mentioned that, uh, for example, in a peacetime, you might fire someone because they have a toxic personality. Have you ever done this? Because I know, uh, us laws are pretty strict on firing people. You can't just fire someone for. For no good reason otherwise you might get a lawsuit can, can you comment on that a little bit or don't you have enough experience in this field yeah i'm probably not like the best person to talk about that i'm, I'm also not like an employment lawyer so right, <laughs> i can't really definitely. speak to the to the details of what is considered cause or, or no cause um we, we we have had like you know those types of conversations before but we we never actually went forward with um, with laying off someone who, you know, sort of against their will, uh, because of that, I think like we've, we've parted ways with, you know, some, some contractors or, uh, something of, of that nature, but it, it was, it was never, uh, I don't think we ever got to the point where we had to fire someone because they had a toxic personality. It's just, it, it just, that can be, you know, one of the, um, one of the factors that, that plays into it. Um, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, to be honest. So now let's move on to your angel investment experience. Uh, are you, first question is, are you still investing even during these times? Yeah, um, I, I am. Uh, and I think actually I've, I've been probably even more active recently than I have, uh, than I was like in the past, you know, three, four months. Um, I'm probably not going to make, you know, new investments for another, you know, two to four weeks just because I just did, you know, two or three um in the last you know month and a half but i'm i'm looking i'm, I'm actually talking to companies actively i'm, I'm definitely on the lookout i think like investing in a downturn is where you potentially get really great deals um there was a great blog post from jason calacanis who was like one of the first investors in uber um where he he talked about um how you know when when he was when he started investing i think it was 2008 or 2009 um, he was able to get in deals like Uber and Instacart for, you know, $10 million valuations, um, which, you know, returned him like, you know, 3000 X, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, whereas now, you know, with, you know, 
after five, six, seven years of bull market, you know, in Q4 2019, we were seeing like I was seeing the same deals like, you know, $15 million caps uh, or $15 million valuations on deals that, you know, were, were, were simply nowhere near, you know, had no traction, no, you know, the founders didn't have a track record, there was no product, no unique insight. Um, so deals that really didn't deserve those types of valuations. And, oh, yeah. and even a lot of these were still getting funded just because of the sheer um, volume of capital in the market. I think now that a lot of the FOMO is gone, there's actually some great deals to be made for investors who are thesis driven. Um, so yeah, I'm absolutely still investing. And that's great to hear. I think, I think that's important for, for angel investors to continue to invest. Otherwise uh, the startup field will suffer too heavily. And I'm actually glad that this, this coronavirus is happening because I think that valuations were way too high. So yeah, hopefully it's going to settle down soon and people who actually need funding will raise it soon. But now let's continue to talking about your angel investing experience. How do you source your deals? Where do you find those startups that you, you've mentioned? Yeah, um, I think like I, it's mostly um, introductions, mostly warm intros from inve other investors, um, venture capitalists, angel investor friends, uh, or entrepreneur friends who know that I angel invest. Um, I think because I'm very sort of focused in terms of the types of deals that I do, um, it makes it easier for people to kind of think, oh, this is a deal for, for Rafa, um, you know, because there's so much capital out there, so many different investors when you really, you know, at every single stage, um, you know, so you're raising a series A in Silicon Valley, there's 300 funds who can lead your series A in Silicon Valley. Um, so, so, you know, you, you gotta have some sort of differentiation. For me, like a, a lot of that came down to focusing on B2B deals, specifically APIs, AI and machine learning companies, uh, consumerization of SaaS companies. Um, and then in terms of the type of founders that I like to work with is mostly underrepresented founders, immigrants, um, mostly at the pre-seed and seed stage. Mm -hmm. And so when you actually start narrowing it down, there's not that many uh, you know, investors who kind of focus on that and then write the check size that I write. Um, and then we'll add the type of value that I add. So it, it was, I think, easier than for for investors to share stuff with me. Um, and then I, I do the same, like I'll share a deal flow with them. Um, so it's kind of a, 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 a you know, give and take. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll definitely answer, you know, cold emails once in a while as well, if it's thoughtful and if it's relevant. Um, but, you know, of course, if someone sends me like a, a consumer app that's got nothing to do with anything I've done before and has nothing to do with my interests. It's it's unlikely that I'll take a serious look just because it's it's you know it's, it also says something about the founder beyond the fact that it's not for me, but also shows that you know that person didn't spend that founder didn't spend a lot of time researching who they reach out to, um, and so you know they're probably sending that deal also to a lot of other investors that are not relevant for them. Um, and then more importantly, like I'm not going to be able to add a lot of value to that founder. So there's not really much of a reason. There's not much of an edge that I can give that founder. Um, so automatically that just makes it less interesting for me, um, to, to, you know, to invest. Right. Yeah. Cold emails. I've heard very, 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 very few stories of when cold email actually worked. So the thing that really <clears throat> interests me personally is how you mix angel investing and being a founder of a startup. 
So at some point you're going to be raising a follow-up round for jobs, right? But at the same time, you're investing in other companies. How, how does it work? How do you explain to investors why you invest your money in other startups, not in your own startup? Yeah. Um, well, and, and, you know, the, the, the short answer to that is that a lot of the investments I make are not my money. It's, you know, being a scout means that I invest a, a, a firm's money um, and I just get a percentage. Um, so that, that, that's, that's part of the answer. Um, I, I think on the, beyond like where the capital is coming from, uh, more than the money, I think is like my time is, is, you know, how, how do I justify, um, you know, spending time on anything else that's not the company. Um, and I thought, I think about that a lot because I'm, I'm very sort of like, I, I try to be as structured as possible with how I spend my time, how I invest our, our resources. Um, and so when I, when I, the first reaction that I had when the partner at that VC firm offered me to be a scout for them was, well, you know, I had a, I have a full-time job. I'm super committed to this. Like I, I, sorry, but I already kind of have my focus. Um, and what she told me was, no, no, don't worry. If you have any great deals that come through your lap, you can invest in them. If not, no worries. And so I said, okay, cool. So, so that's how I got into it initially was it, it was just no risk. So I was like, okay, sure. It's not even my money. Why not? It's a, it's a great deal. Um, and it doesn't cost me anything. Uh, but then what I ended up realizing when I started talking to a couple of founders here and there, um, and I didn't do a single deal for six months because I was still so focused on the company. I wasn't even spending a single minute on it. But then after I did my first investment, I realized that there was actually a lot to be learned from other founders. And until I had that platform of being an investor, it was difficult to really sit down and have incredibly smart founders, a lot of them much smarter than me, much more experienced, really walk me through how they think about their business, how they think about their industry, how they're uh, thinking through, um, you know, the problem, the solution, building product, building great teams. And what I ended up realizing is um, spending, you know, a couple percentage points of my time on this thing actually helps me be a better CEO, helps me be a better founder. Because so I can spend, you know, time learning from these from these founders um and so so i ended up really enjoying investing uh namely from from the standpoint that it actually i think helps me be a, a better founder it's kind of like you know <laughs> having a, a you know a free mba for, for, for how to be a founder um and then you know these 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 founders become also a support system so when something oh, yeah. like covid hits i have you know 10 12 founders that i invest in that i can see their investor updates i can talk with them and see how they're adapting Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 uh, it actually, I think has benefits from a founder perspective. That's, that's a really good point. I think you really described this in a very, very nice way. And I think being a scout is just wonderful. It's basically the best thing you can do in my opinion, but let's move on to last two questions and we'll wrap it up. So first I like when my speakers share some, some specific instruments for other founders to use. And in this case, I would really like to you to share some uh, book recommendations because i mean this podcast is of course educational but even i can do uh, all, all all the work you know so what what books would you recommend for a starting founder who is just beginning his or her journey yeah i think um i think th- right now in light of what's happening with covid probably the best book that i can think of is the hard thing about the hard thing about hard things 
um, which is a, a book by uh, Ben Horowitz, one of the founding partners of Andrews and Horowitz. Nice. Um, and before he started Andrews and Horowitz, he um, he was a founder in the dot com, you know, sort of pre and post dot com uh-huh. uh, crisis. And so he he talks a lot about you know raising a lot of VC money in a in a bull market, um, and then you know the dot com bubble burst. And then he had to sort of hustle to figure out, you know, how to how to how to manage this. And so it's a lot of personal stories, but it's also a lot of learnings from working with hundreds of amazing founders at Andreessen Horowitz. And I think right now, uh, and he he actually is the guy who sort of coined this term of wartime CEO versus peacetime CEO. So I think right now, mm-hmm. if you're if you're a CEO and you feel like you've been somewhat impacted by COVID, which is probably going to be the majority of, of folks out there, uh, it's probably the number one book recommendation I would have. That's that's a good recommendation. I haven't actually read it. Probably should. And here I want to move on to our last question. Then we'll wrap it up. So that's the question that I try to ask every speaker of mine. And it's what three steps do you recommend for a startup founder to take to get the first check from an investor? Um, three steps to get a check from an investor. Um, I would say probably number one is is you know m- make a list of the like exactly the, the the type of investors that you want to really reach out to. Like as I mentioned earlier, don't reach out or don't ask for introductions to investors who don't invest in your industry and in your type of business or in your stage. Um, there's very easy math that you can do. Like if it's a hundred million dollar fund, um, you know they're they're not going to sign a ten million dollar check. Uh, but likewise, they're probably not going to sign a, a 50K or 10K check. Um, so, you know, they, they're going to have, um, you know, fund require like ownership requirements. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to have, you know, you know, check size requirements. So just, you know, be thoughtful about which investors you're talking to. Um, so that I would I would say that's that's number one. Um, number two is is in your pitch. Um, be very um, sort of at the same time, very concrete, uh, but at the same time, you have to pitch the billion dollar vision. And I think like, you know, you have some founders that are really great at pitching the grand vision of why this could be the new operating system for X industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, when you want to get into the details, you realize that there's no sort of meat. Uh, So that's going to be a problem, but you know, vice versa, if you just have a really nifty tool, but I, I, as a VC, I just can't see the billion dollar vision that actually in many cases will be a, a deal breaker because the economics of a VC firm are made so that um, they only want to invest in potentially billion dollar companies because that's just how the math of the VC firm works. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, this is more of just a tip when you're pitching. Just be very concise. I think investors love founders that are very concise, very like uh structured in how they think. Um, don't go on a 15 minute rant to answer a question that can be answered in 10 or 20 seconds. I think if, you know, the more concise and the more you can um, compact a lot of uh, information in, a, uh, in an answer, but in a very concise and dense way, uh, that's also sort of very clear, that's amazing. So be a clear communicator, be a concise communicator that will take you a very, very long way when you're pitching investors. That's all of those are great points and thanks. Thanks for sharing them.
All right, we're going to wrap it up here. Raphael, thanks. Uh, never mind, we have a question from the audience. <laughs> so you mentioned that COVID has created a bigger market for remote tech tools. What advice do you have for founders of companies creating remote tech tools? That's, that's actually a good question. Yeah. Um, I think right now is a great moment to get new customers. <laughs> um, very, very simply put. Um, I, I would say, yeah, figure out um, funds or maybe grants that you can tap into that actually support uh, remote tech tools right now. There's a lot of them because uh, you can technically be considered a, a COVID support, um, you know, solution. Um, but in, more importantly, like in terms of, you know, getting customers on board, um, now's the best time to sort of, you know, offer your solution for free or heavily discount it. Now's the time to sort of like be, you know, build your brand and, 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 you know, if that means getting customers in at a heavy discount, um, that's fine because remote is here to stay. Um, but now's the time to grab market share. Uh, it's not the time to sort of optimize your margins. So right now you want to get in as many customers and users as you can show that, that hockey stick growth. Um, and if that means heavily discounting, then so be it. Um, and then, and then you do, you can bring your prices back to what they are, um, you know, after the sort of crisis settles mm -hmm. gradually, thoughtfully, um, and then, you know, you'll see if you have product market fit, if your customers actually stick around. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. I love it. I'm so happy that this question was answered because this is a positive note. Now we're going to wrap it up. Thanks, Raphael, for coming up. Thanks for sharing your experience and for answering those questions in a precise way, surely and nicely, straight to the point. And have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.